I'm Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everyone. Today, my guest is Clint Sabom. He and Mark Thomas Shaw are the founders of Contemplative Light, a website offering resources and community to healing professionals and contemplative practitioners. And Clint is also the author of Preparation for Great Light, Recollections of a Christian Mystic. I'm excited to talk with him today about his experience in Christian mysticism and his experience of a mystical experience, as well as some other things about mysticism and Christianity and the stages through the framework of Evelyn Underhill and John Cation. Thank you so much, Clint, for being my guest today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's fantastic to be here. We're doing a swap cast where you're going to be on my podcast and then I'm going to be on yours, maybe in the reverse order, I'm not sure. But it's great to speak with other people who are into spiritual formation and contemplative Christianity. And so it's always fun to talk. I don't want to say talk shop because this is kind of the way we're living in the world, but with people who have the same passions and have had similar experiences and are trying to have a growing awareness of God in all things. It was really interesting to read your short memoir on your experience as well as your time in a monastery. Um, So without giving it away so people can download this from Amazon, I'll have links in the show notes and everything. Maybe you can give a little bit of an overview of what your book was about and what you were trying to, to drive at with your book. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, my book was really about things that happened 10 years ago and before. So in a sense, it's outdated, but it was one of those things where it was just kind of hanging around on a file on my desktop. And I I thought it was a lot of experiences worth sharing. And I really wanted to get it out there because what it tells is basically I give the reader a very inside look at like my life and my thought processes, mainly from like, you know, age 21 to age 30. And, and at age 30, I went to live in a silent Benedictine monastery. And uh, that was kind of the culmination and the main point of the book, although the book does have kind of flashbacks to earlier experiences I've had uh, that I, I suppose I put in the category of mystical. And when I say that, I'm really just kind of talking about uh, the experience of the divine and the here now, you know, uh, gr- I think growing up in church, you, a lot of people kind of get told like, well, God exists and God is this way and God is that way. And then they, they've been told that. So they kind of repeat that and then they believe that. But, you know, this is kind of more from the perspective of, oh, well, then if God exists, wouldn't he be here in my room with me? And couldn't I access him? And, I came into accessing that kind of opening of, of presence and consciousness or the Holy Spirit or, or the, you know, the kingdom now or, you know, whatever word you want to use for it. I came into that almost spontaneously at 21 uh, during an experience where there was a very intense emotional release. And it was as if I released uh, so much so quickly, I almost kind of uh, rode the river of my own emotional release, uh, you know, to a point where, uh, you know, the whole world just kind of um, 
crumbled and opened up all at the same time. And, you know, it's, it's really kind of like, you know, once, um, you know, the spiritual teacher, Adyashanti kind of says basically, you know, like once, once you have that first big experience, you're kind of screwed really, because you know, nothing, nothing else is going to satisfy you, but basically culminating, you know, the, the, the process of whatever that began. And I wanted to explore the process within uh, my native tradition. You know, I certainly considered looking at, or I did look at, at Buddhist monasteries at, you know, things in, in other countries as well, but, but I really wanted to, uh, try to, to try to find something in a path within my own tradition, because I kind of thought if I didn't, I would always be kind of almost, you know, lonely for, for Jesus in a sense. So I ended up going to an Episcopal monastery. Oh, yeah. I, I'm glad you say it like that, too, because some people who have been raised in, like I was raised in a, a fundamentalist uh, conservative Christian tradition where those experiences might be sort of um, frowned on or, I don't know, not really bothered to be explained. However, if you look in the Bible, there's plenty of mystical experiences. Like Moses burning bush experience is a mystical experience. It's hard to explain. It, de- it defies logic and really explanation, but yet it it starts off, it kicks off this big time of real presence of God in Moses' life and it gets him into action toward freeing the people of Israel from slavery. And really any experience with God uh, precedes any religious uh, practice too, usually in, in all the faith traditions. So it's usually starts with an experience of God, like Augustine has an experience in the garden with God, and then he later converts. And, and so what we're talking about is not so strange and outlandish. Everybody can experience something of the divine. And then sometimes people have a very overwhelming and cathartic or even frightening experience happening all at once. And then it takes a long time to process through that. It sounds like you were seeking a little bit of help in tweezing apart all that happened or how to figure it out. And um, it's interesting that you chose a silent monastery and then tried to have the help of of people sort of further along in the monastic experience. And, and did you find that they were good um, partners for your journey or, or mentors for you? Yeah, yeah, they were um, in in many ways and in different levels. You know, it's definitely important to note that in a monastery, in a sense, you're in community and you're with people and you have people looking out for you, but you're really kind of on your own at the same time. So you kind of have that that phrase, uh, living alone together is kind of the mantra. And I, I mean, I've kind of heard psychologists use that as like a phrase that applies to marriage too. But having been married and having been in a monastery, it's much more true in a monastery. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, they were very helpful and they were very open as well. There, there was certainly uh, a wisdom there that was experiential, that was, they, that was psychological as well, that was familiar with 
with other traditions. And so there, there certainly was not uh, any dogma. I mean, now that's not to say what you pointed out isn't there. And, and you're right, because a lot of what just the kind of average Christian experiences, whether it's a conversion experience or whether it's even just kind of feeling the spirit in church, um, you know, that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg there. And, you know, in a monastery, it's almost like, you know, going into that fully, um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like if you stuck your toe in a, in a hot bathtub and you were like, Ooh, you know, and then you moved your toe out and you're like, Ooh, I, you know, I felt the fire of the Holy spirit, you know, the monastery's more like, well, let's just ease into this hot water. So our whole body gets used to it till we're basically completely, you know, sitting, sitting full body in the tub. I mean, that, that's kind of how it is. And, and yet at the same time, I think another thing that's just sticks out, you know, and, and granted, I'm looking at this retrospectively now much more than I was in the book. But one thing that sticks out too, is just the extreme difference of living in the world versus living in the monastery. I think that's very different as well. Um, you know, th there's a certain kind of lifestyle in the monastic life that is very central, you know, I mean, one of the things that uh, one of the monks told me was that when, when monks first joined the monastery, you know, they kind of don't really want them to like start reading St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and going into these deep things. They kind of want them to just get used to the lifestyle and the way of life for the first couple of years to, to have a foundation. Um, you know, the interesting thing for me was that just the lifestyle of all that silence and all that prayer, uh, for me anyways, I guess I was open enough that it couldn't help but but uh, basically bring me deeper and deeper and into a deeper integration. And integration is the word it com that comes to mind because kind of after having that first experience at 21 that opens up, and then going to the monastery at 30, it, you know, that's nine years. And, and, and really, you know, I mean, we're up to the present where I'm 41. And I mean, I'm just kind of saying my age so you can kind of get a sense of the timeline here. Um, but really, a lot of times opening up too much too quick, I think, can really bring everybody's, uh, bring anyone's unconscious uh, psychological issues just really quickly to the forefront. And uh, to be realistic, I, it, it probably happened too much too quick for me. So the monastery was a way of kind of steadying, steadying everything. So, and, and the other thing too, and, and, and this is the last thing I want to say is, is there's an important piece as well on just like the energy of a space, the energy of a space. It's kind of like a lot of times sensitive people, probably people that listen to your podcast, seekers, you know, um, they, they may walk into a particular church or particular building and they may feel like, ooh, this is some calm energy or this is some bad energy or, you know, not that it's going to happen all the time, but, you know, there's a sensitivity to space that can happen with certain people. And what happened with the monastery is, is like that. I mean, I, I went there and it's as if I just felt it immediately. And then, but, but, 
but then after you you're there a while then you kind of get used to it you know and it just becomes normal and then going back out into the world everything gets crazy so yeah did you notice when you left the monastery at all to go to the outside world like a grocery store or something like that that you were felt very raw and exposed in in, in spiritual terms like to the world the outside world felt did it feel like too loud and too rough or something like that yeah it did it did it it had it had that effect it also had the effect of all of a sudden being totally intriguing. Like you're, you know, after being in the monastery for a while, uh, you know, all of a sudden, I, I remember I, I did go, I would see, I, I was just kind of an aspirant. I wasn't like under formal vows. So, you know, I, I could really just say, hey, I want to take a day off, you know, and go into the city. And, and every now and then I would do that. And I think after I'd been there ba- basically a month, I, I did that. And, and this was kind of outside of Milwaukee in Wisconsin. And I, I took a, a day and a night off. I actually went into Milwaukee, got a hotel room, and just, you know, was in a different space for a while. And it was, it, it was, it was really fascinating being there all of a sudden. It was just like, wow. This, you know, this world is so wild. Uh, but but, I, but I, I would hear often stories of the monks and nuns. This was a co-ed place. The monks and nuns would talk about, about their own experiences with this as well. And some of them, I remember one, one sister joined the order formally right around the time I was there. And she went to do the monastery's weekly grocery shopping. And she said that, you know, she, she felt like she was going to have a panic attack, you know, right there in the middle of, of the grocery store, which is, is understandable too. So it, it is, it is a marked contrast that people could experience in, in different ways for sure. So did you see yourself when you went in there as, um, considering the life of the priesthood or did you feel like you just needed this time to kind of sort things out was was becoming uh, a monk priest something that you were truly considering so yes both 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 of what you mentioned are definitely true i think though that the dominant factor was really just kind of wanting to be there and wanting to see it I do think I was considering becoming a monk, and I think I probably continued to consider that for years after I left. But at the time, I also really just wanted the experience of the monastery, if I'm honest with myself. I just wanted the experience and just to see how it goes and take it from there. Yeah. It seems like from the book that it was in many ways a, a good fit and you, you didn't have, um, well, it, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like you, it wasn't this enormously hard, horrendous fit that you kind of eased into it with, with some natural, I don't know, grace or, or whatever, like you were ready for it in many ways. 
Yeah, you know, I was, and, and it really strikes me. I remember the, the founder of the order said something to me like, you're so comfortable here so quick, and this extreme silence and prayer would drive 99.9% of the population absolutely nuts. I mean, how can you be so comfortable in this and not think that you have a vocation to be a monk? And he certainly has a point with that. <laughs> huh. So um, why didn't you stay? What what happened? You know, I, I don't really think that I was extremely conscious of it at the time. I think I just felt like it was a very narrow uh, path to join the order, and I wanted to keep my options open. Uh, I think of, you, you probably have talked about this on some of your podcasts too, you know, like the Myers-Briggs where they talk about like, like I'm an INFP on that. So at the, at the end, you know, are you a P or a J? And they'll, they'll sometimes talk about the difference, like J's like a final decision and a definite plan and P's just like to keep their options open, you know, and, and I think I'm just an extreme P in that way. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. Once you, you feel good until you make the decision, then you're like, did I, did I want to do that? Oh, right. Right. Well, you know, and, and what's even more interesting is with the monastery, I, I played it out the opposite way because I remember saying, I remember saying that while I was at the monastery and that's probably like the strongest kind of argument I came up with why I wasn't going to join would be if I joined, I would always be thinking, what if I was out in the world? You know, like, what would my life in the world have been? And I remember a few of them saying, if you think it'd be that, then you, you don't need to do it. Well, with that denomination, is it, um, are you celibate? Are you allowed to marry? Are you, what, what sort of life would you expect to have? That order was celibate. Um, I mean, you have celibacy, you know, obedience. Right. Poverty, chastity, obedience, and prayer. And the chastity, they were celibate. And, you know, so I would have been celibate, basically. And I would have really had to basically do what the abbot of the monastery at the time, or abbotess, would say to do. You know. And the celibacy probably wasn't as big of a turnoff, really, really as... Just the uh, just the overall idea of being like stuck in one place for some reason that made me just stir crazy. Imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> but but not like you, you were there. It's funny though because like if you're there and you're picking it and you're thinking, yeah, I can stay here no problem. And then it, like, but you have to stay here indefinitely. And then it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> perfectly happy here until you said that yeah yeah that's ex that's exactly it and and i think there's a little bit of embarrassment in me because it sounds like you know such a big serious spiritual decision deciding vocation but it like comes down to something like that but i don't have the option to leave you know and and, and if, uh, of course you do have the option to leave i mean monks do break the vows monks do uh go you know renounce you know we whatever you know, throw their vows away and leave and, and have a life. It, it does happen. I mean, it, but it's, it's kind of, it's kind of got the seriousness of marriage. I mean, may, maybe movie stars are okay getting for married and divorced like four or five times, but I generally think like most people think like, okay, marriage is, is 
bit like the idea is to stay, you know, like I understand that taking it seriously would, you know, you wouldn't want to do it unless you felt truly ready to really commit your life to it. I think that's very important to, to do that. And I can imagine just being at a point in your life where do I want to forego marriage and children? Do I want to, you know, or, or whatever it is that you think you might miss out on, it is a pretty big deal. So there's no, like, I don't see anything wrong with, with that. It's, it's interesting because when you, when you do fit into a lifestyle that seems like a nice fit, and then you think, how do I want my life to go? You know, it's, it's huge. It feels like a huge decision. I wasn't sure because you said it was Episcopalian if they, like how it worked in that, in that situation, but it sounds like it's awfully serious commitment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it worked the same way generally as like maybe the Cistercians would, uh, you know, in some sort of Catholic Benedictine monastery, you know, I mean, it was pretty much under the rule of Benedict. I mean, obviously if you're an Episcopal priest in the world and you have like a parish, you know, sure you can marry. Uh, but but it's a very different thing, and that's another thing to point out. Like the monastery is is not really the same thing as just going to church a lot. For people who don't know or aren't very familiar, what what it, some of it entails? Sure, sure. So you know, you'd wake up early in the morning, and you know, it would first start with just um, you know a morning prayer, and um, you know, the, the, then there would be breakfast, um, you know, let's just say right after morning prayer, and then there would be Eucharist, and then there would be a period of like maybe three hours up to about noon, and then at noon you'd have noonday prayer, and then maybe you'd have uh, an hour or two break. Oh, and then after noonday prayer you'd have probably the biggest meal of the day, Um, you know, so you have like a big lunch and, and all the meals were silent except on Sundays. So most of the time, all this is happening with silence. Um, you know, that they would differ between like lesser silence and greater silence. So greater silences don't talk unless it's an emergency. Lesser silence is kind of saying like what only what needs to be said. Um, you know, because obviously sometimes people think, you know, it's a silent monastery. Like you didn't talk at all. Well, no, I mean, no, you talked. I mean, if you were working and you needed to mow the yard and like tell somebody like, you know, hey, hey, Clint, the lawnmower's in the garage. Let me show you where it is. This is, you know, or, or whatever, whatever it is. I mean, obviously you've got to talk a little bit. Um, so, so, you know, afternoon day prayer, you have a, a lunch time and a break time. And, and of course I wasn't, you know, a formal monk. So uh, I, I probably had... A, a huge chunk of time, uh, you know, until evening prayer. So, you know, that was, that was actually a time when I used to, to write some of this book. So I was actually kind of writing some of the book while I was there. So it, it's really, it's really not as much of a reflection back at a later stage. I mean, it's it very much like what, what I was thinking at the time. And then around five, you'd have the evening prayer and then a dinner and then you'd have uh, a recreational time and then you'd have silent prayer and then you'd have compline. And each prayer segment that I'm mentioning is about half an hour. 
And you worked during some of those other times that if it wasn't a break and it wasn't prayer, were you working and helping around the monastery? Well, during the morning break time, that's when the work time was. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it was helping. It was usually, well, I guess depending on the person, but I usually kind of did the the grunt stuff. So I shoveled a lot of snow. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And, and how long were you there total? I was there for six months. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Like I can see some people staying for a few weeks or even a few months, but half a year, you really get a sense of what that life is like and what that much silence is like because it's very unusual to have that much silence, uh, to have it absorb your life that much. Um, and I think that... For, for a lot of people, that much silence or encountering that brings up a lot of things that they weren't expecting. And for you, did it bring up, um, like, was there anything about the silence that surprised you in, in your own inner work? Well, you know, I was, I was fairly familiar with a lot of my inner landscape. I mean, I think I'd had a good amount of therapy in my 20s and I had also yeah. basically had uh, you know a life where I did have some alone time but yeah still you know even all that said there was certainly certainly stuff that came up that I wasn't expecting or just you know turned up in a different way I think it would it would it would kind of be impossible not to but but at the same time I think what it was was I wanted it to come up I wanted it to come up mm-hmm. um, I think I think maybe what surprised me is like there was no like magic button you know there was no magic button like mm. you know they didn't take me in the cellar and be like well you've opened up a little bit if you really want full and like and just press the button. We got it here. You know, like it, it, it didn't work that way. <laughs> you mentioned this in your book that there's, you know, some people who will complain or, you know, the, the dramas of the monastery are seemingly, you know, boring dramas or <laughs> the, the trespasses or something are really boring. Yeah, definitely. But at the time they seem very important. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and you can have, even though people are secluded and and in a silent place, it doesn't mean that they're all these holy, you know, mature, perfect people um, who are above everybody else in their, in their faith and maturity and, or something like that. I, it probably runs the whole spectrum of different types of people who are there. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, I think that's accurate. I, one of the things they would talk about is, um, you know, that you know how much people love to kind of project onto monks and nuns that image of holiness. Um, but it was much more something that I would, I would think was less less about holiness and righteousness as it really was almost about almost about it it was it was strange because they were very they were very disciplined and kind of regimented and uh on point with so many things 
but at the same time, they were not uptight at all. Like these, are the this, in a sense, like these are you know these are the people like um, doing yoga all the time. Like these are the hippies at the drum circle. Like these, you know, they were kind of these mellow, chill people. And in a sense, that's just kind of the natural thing that's going to happen. The thing about that is you may not even know where the other, where everybody else is too. Um, you know, you may not, you may not know nor, uh, care. There's a sense of boundaries and privacy around each person's individual path that they would often joke. Like if we kind of shared all the stuff we went through, we'd kill each other off. So, um, you know, they may be living together for, for 10 or 20 years, but they're not like hashing out like the finer points of mysticism. At least they would talk. Now they would talk about it some, but they wouldn't be hashing it out in any sort of personal way. Like they put it like the vertical, their vertical relationship with God is central. There's not an emphasis on the horizontal level. So, I mean, it's, it's like, you could have a monk that you lived with for 10 years, but he's not going to be like, hey, I just had this big experience the other day, and I think I really finally had a breakthrough. I really need to share. Do you want to sit and talk? Like, they wouldn't know. No, like, none of that. Because um, that I think that, and, and I understood why completely, because I think that would be just completely overwhelming if you started mixing all that with everybody. Would you say then that the people there were well bonded with each other, well connected, would would help each other out in things like that? Or did they seem distant from each other then? Like I said, there, there's not the personal sharing, you know, horizontal component that you would like have in a marriage or even like a deep friendship. But there's certainly, definitely, a, I mean, if you want to call it just love or, you know, brotherhood and sisterhood of sure of looking out for each other and everything all the time. Um, so, you know, if one person was sick or if one person needed to go to the hospital or if a member, I mean, you know, anything and everything, I mean, you know, they were kind of, they were kind of on the boat together, you know, independent of what happened to the boat. So there is that. And, and each one would probably have their own spiritual director at times where they talked about things. And sometimes the spiritual director might be um, the abbot or abbotess. Sometimes it might be someone outside the monastery even, uh, or, or a monk at another monastery, you know, to get get an outsider perspective, I guess. Um there's a love and togetherness like all the way that just is simply basically probably just a natural product of the way the the rule of Benedict and the, the whole lifestyle set up. Now, after you were done at the monastery, did you continue to see a director or continue in any kind of similar practice of, of prayer or anything like that, that that carried you on or was it a, a real switch to a different sort of life afterwards did you carry anything with you well you know when i first left i i almost wanted to recreate monasteries wherever i went like in wherever i lived it, it was it was as if like i always wanted um you know in my room to have like or even just to have a room depending on how big the space i was living in was you know, where I could have like an altar and, 
um, you know, icons and, and basically pray and, and do the liturgy. And I still have the liturgy with me. Um, it, obviously, it is, it's seemingly impossible to, you know, do whatever six or seven prayer sessions of 30 to 40 minutes each, like every day as you live in the world. But you could certainly do one before bed, um, and you could even try to be ambitious and do one in the morning and then one before bed. And that's kind of what I, I think I tried to do, something like that. Um, you know, at least, I, well, I mean, that that's never stopped, uh, but there's certainly been been much more than just that. And you know probably about new monasticism, and you've heard about the, the the trend maybe or the the resurgence of monasticism, new forms of it. Whether people live in some type of community, um, and they take some kind of vows with each other, uh, and has that intrigued you at all to start something like that? Be Abbot Clint <laughs> or something like. Well, well, I think that was the I think that was the inspiration for contemplative light. Definitely, I mean that was that was where I was coming from with contemplative light. You know, I definitely, I definitely love spirituality, and I certainly love the world's religious traditions. I've always really been into personal growth and self help as well, and and also from the perspective of kind of, yeah, keeping the monastic element in my own life, I kind of felt like, well, you know, if I start this, it's almost like it was a way to of forcing me to uh, continue this. Mm. So how did you meet Mark and, and begin to start this whole contemplative light com and the resources and partnership? So I think I was doing a blog and he was doing a blog. And for a while, I'd probably been listening to things like um, Pat Flynn and different podcasts about trying to build online businesses or online platforms. But at the same time, I kept and and I would have different ideas of what I was going to do. But then at the same time, I guess maybe because I wasn't as interested in business as I was like spirituality, I would start listening to more spiritual podcasts. And then, so I eventually was like, "Well, um, you know, this is this is the niche I, w- I would I would do." And um, I think I'd come to that decision before Mark and I met, and I think he had come to that decision before we met too. Um, I think it was real good timing. We we were kind of both in the same space, right around the same age, right around the same interest, probably right around the same you know, spiritual progress, if, if that's, you know, something you can even like quantify. But, um, so yeah, yeah. And, and we talked on the phone a few times and it just, it felt easy and flowed. And, um, I, I, we kind of just jumped into it and didn't look back. I think that was like January of 2017 or, or yeah, or it was right around the first of the last year, I guess, when we kind of really started getting things going. Yeah, and you actually have done quite a bit since then. You haven't started that long ago, but there's several things. Why don't you tell people some of the things you already have up there? 
Sure. So, you know, we have a podcast, the Contemplative Light podcast. We also have our website at contemplativelight.com, which has a whole lot of blogs on mysticism, largely in the context of the contemplative Christian tradition and the world religions, but there's certainly other blogs about other aspects of growth as well. Um, we're pretty, pretty ecumenical or, or universal in our approach to, to healing and growth. And so we have a lot of information in our writing and in the podcast, and, but we also have online classes. So, you know, last year, and we still have it available, uh, our first classes were on contemplative practices. So we just kind of have a, a shorter class really on contemplative practices where we kind of cover the core Christian practices and we go through Lectio Divina, we go through Centering Prayer, uh, like the Christian meditation of John Main, um, you know, coming out of the world community of Christian meditation that I, I think Lawrence Freeman's the leader now. We go over that practice. We go over uh, the Jesus prayer, which is is very strong in the, the Orthodox uh, tradition, but, you know, certainly something that's, that's very uh, popular with Protestants and Catholics as well. And then the other one's Ignatian spirituality. Uh, so, so those are the five, um, those are the five basically exercises, um, Ignatian exercises, centering prayer, Lectio Divina, the Jesus prayer and Christian meditation. So we did that. And then we did a class kind of on, uh, contemplative perspectives covering, uh, the different kinds of stages or approaches and frameworks of understanding mysticism. And then now we have a big class coming out on the Christian mystics where we kind of go over through the, over the biography of 20 different historical Christian mystics. And we also talk about their writings and their own kind of process and, and what they went through and, and the kind of key takeaways. So we kind of cover it almost historically and, and experientially. And it, we, we cover 20 different figures in Christian mysticism. Right. I've looked at, at some of those already and seen the course and very excited to, to dig into that more, all those videos. There's so much there uh, to, to watch and a lot of information looks really good. So I think that's going to be a treasure trove for a lot of people to get uh, orientation on 20 different people. And there's, there's a lot of variance in, you know, in time of when they came and some of their different ideas. And yet there is a lot. Sure. Sure. And we, we even, we even, um, include one heretic or one like really bad heretic, uh, Giordano Bruno who got burned at the stake. So yeah, we, we're, we're pretty, um, democratic and, and, you know, p picking the characters. Um, maybe we can go into the stages of mysticism in Christianity. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing you could you could maybe uh, talk to us about. I think in England they say evil in Underhill. That sounds a little mean, <laughs> Evelyn Underhill um, and John Cation. Some of those stages of Christian mysticism as. Sure, sure. That that's funny about England. Is is that just because of the accent, or are there people actually trying to make a comment there? No, no. That's that's just how they say the name, and she's from there, you know. So I I heard her heard her spoken of that, and that we've been saying it all wrong this time. But I just feel like I can't say her name like that. 
Evelyn right, right. Underhill. I can't do it. Right. Evelyn. Right. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> it just seems messed up. Listen to a little bit of of some of this on a video that Mark did. And so I think I know my, what might be coming. But I- Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I got into her writings basically because I just, I was, I was actually in like the, the, um, the stacks, I think it was like kind of like a lower basement of like the Vassar college library. And this was like right after I'd had like, you know, this big mystical experience. And I just basically accident, it was really wild. I accidentally just started picking up books or I was just picking up books randomly. And I, you know, I opened Evelyn Underhill's mysticism and she started like describing like what I had experienced and I'm just like, wow. And it, and, and it was actually many years later, and, and especially when we started with Contemplative Light, that I started really looking into it. But mysticism, uh, is it, it, that's just the name of the book, is, is probably the best place to start. But she just kind of goes through the stages in the process of, of Christian mystics and also just includes a whole lot of you know, kind of quotes from the mystics themselves. So it's really kind of a compilation of, of things, you know, I mean, it, I mean, she, she has a lot of her good own commentary and, but, but I mean, she has a whole lot of just, uh, quotes from them as well, but the stages, roughly speaking, she puts it into like their awakening, uh, at one, uh, stage two, she puts us the purgative way. Stage three is the illuminative, illuminative way. Stage four is the dark night of the soul. And then stage five is the unitive way. So she has five stages. And that's generally an extension of the kind of Benedictine model of, of John Cashin, who goes back into like very, very early Christianity. And he just put it at purgation, illumination, and divine union. So he had three stages. And it's real popular to to talk about the stages. You know, what's interesting though is the more I've like talked about the stages, the the and the more feedback I've gotten from like readers and students at Contemplative Light, it it's almost like the less I want to talk about it, you know, because I almost feel like I mean, the natural instinct of the ego is to start evaluating yourself and even like comparing yourself to others. And, and somehow I just think that blocks the process, you know, wherever you are in it. And and I don't think there's ever a right or wrong answer. And I definitely don't think it's perfectly linear, but, but it, and, and I, and I guess to be fair, I probably did that too with myself, but at a certain state, at a certain point, yeah, it, it really becomes a block starting to really kind of attach to where you are because, um, you know, there, there's aspects of all five stages, you know, as part of the process and not everybody's going to, you know, come to God in their own way. There's quite a mix because you can be in an illumination stage and then have a, another great awakening from that stage. But I, I'd like to go over what, just to explain what each one is. I don't think it's linear either because I, I just, I've known so many people who just bounced around so much and including myself and, and how they're so intertwined with each other. But 
if we're talking about purgation, can you define that a little bit? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think, well, I mean, the first one with awakening the way Underhill understands it is it's almost more like a higher criteria to, to even start, start in this than say like Thomas Keating would have Thomas Keating puts at the beginning, just, you know, believers like that's stage one, like some sort of commitment or, or choice or, um, but, but, for Underhill, it seems like the the awakening one is a little bit more of, yes, sure, some extreme conversion experiences might be an awakening experience, um, but it, it does seem like something really big happens, you know, really some opening where you see, okay, wait, there is actually more than just material reality, and God is just actually more than just an idea there is actually some sort of spiritual element kind of flowing through all things like in the here now, like you get some sense of that, I think, you know, for that. And then the purgative way I consider really something that probably just happens always, you know, from that point forward or, or probably could even, could even happen in a lesser kind of more psychological sense, even before an awakening experience, but the purgative way is really just kind of, I, I think, more of a clearing and a churning and um, kind of breaking up old patterns. Um, you know, obviously, traditionally, they would talk about it as maybe, um, you know, releasing sins. But, but I think it, 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 it does seem, I mean, not to not to start rewriting like the Christian tradition, but it really does seem like a lot of, a lot of what is meant by sin in the mystical writings around purgation is, is very similar to what we might think of as like attachments or addictions or bad habits or obsession. And I suppose it could take, it could take the form of other things too, in, in terms of understanding yourself in relationships to there's like an inbreaking sometimes of God into your life as a new reality and then kind of a sorting process of how everything else then breaks down um, and how your life unfolds differently from that time on. And things can fall away because they don't make sense anymore in your new life. So I, I've seen I've seen it described in different ways different ways of course a, a cleansing or time of a burning away or something like that things that aren't needed anymore purification but it, i think also in in maybe even in psychological terms oh definitely yeah i really like the way you put that um you know just then at the beginning of, of what you said I, th I think that's spot on about about how it is and i think a lot of that kind of continues into the next one you know, the illuminative way and um, kind of what you mentioned about having like another big awakening. I kind of think of the illuminationist like kind of that, but really I almost feel like it's more of an, a, a deepening of the awakening experience. So it's kind of like you've had the awakening and then, yeah, you've had the reorientation and the releasing and and all the stuff you're kind of working out from that point forward and in the purgative way. And actually your, your, your name for the podcast you did on our podcast, when we interviewed you about suffering makes room for contemplation, that's like kind of 
what what hopefully happens to some degree in the purgative way. So in the illuminative way, it's like, okay, wait, I have more room here. I have more of an integrative way of kind of holding holding this kind of spiritual presence in day-to-day life, um, you know, whereas before it might almost seem like, you know, you're kind of doing a whole lot of flip-flopping, you know, from, you know, you have this big awakening experience, then you have kind of reorienting and, and working through a lot of your psychological stuff. But the illumination is almost like, okay, I'm, I think I'm a little bit deeper and more firmly rooted in um, what some might call higher consciousness or, or the presence of God um, all the time. You've, you've kind of just gotten rooted into the higher frequency a bit. Uh, is the way I would I, I, I think of the illuminative way and, and obviously I'm using real contemporary language uh, under underhill's very good at using the language of not only of Christian theology but she, you know she's good with kind of psychological terms and and you know well read so um, you know you kind of get a wide a wide variety of different ways to put it. Would you say, Clint, that illumination, the luminative way, is also related to just getting a breadth of education on? Oh, I think it definitely can be. I, I think that can be part of the purgative way too. I mean, um, yeah, because I mean, definitely some sort of like just frameworks and education and and all of that, and probably too like a, a desire to continue on with it. And to almost be able to validate your own experience. I mean, you you know, I mean, I I don't think it, it's hard to fool the say, self, but I do think that it happens that people can have awakening experiences and almost think like, almost like minimize it, and never really like see a path there. So yeah, you've got to kind of see that a path is forward with all of this and that um, yeah, that it does have reference points and, uh, not only the Christian tradition, but all the world's religious traditions. I, yeah, I think that's definitely important. And, and also I think that once you have had, you know, a kind of opening and a kind of deepening of self-awareness too, as well as spiritual awareness, um, intellectual learning like this, and especially about this kind of stuff, um, it, it's almost as if it starts to sink in quicker. So it's not purely an intellectual exercise anymore. So the education then becomes, yeah, it may start off as intellectual, but very quickly you're kind of starting to see experientially what it's talking about as well too. So you may be reading the Christian mystics and it's not just like an intellectual exercise. You're really kind of starting to see the world like they saw the world and you're like, Oh yeah, it is kind of like that. And, and so, so yeah, yeah. And I would say not only um, can, is education a great uh, of all of this uh, a good part of the process, but I'd say the education you do do, ends up being a lot deeper and, and a lot more powerful. Yeah. I know some people have like in, in Christian in Christian circles or upbringing, they'll read about it, but they don't experience it. Then they do. Then they read about it. Then they really know, you know, so then it, it provides the framework for what they've experienced. So it's not just like, 
you know, did I get food poisoning? <laughs> you know, like this, this is, this is something that's rich and deep in tradition. This isn't just like an episode I had. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was so important for me at the monastery. I, I mean, I really needed that validation. Um, and, and, and I think that, that that's kind of what I got at the monastery a little bit. I got the validation that, okay, this is real and sure this is all there because yeah, I mean, like you said, um, you need to know it's not just like something you ate or, you know, a fluke in the cosmos. Right. Or this is a one-off thing. And I, I just, you know, maybe I have a brain tumor and I just, uh, or whatever it is, you know, I know people who had experiences, they can't explain it. And so then they dismiss it instead of, instead of, well, let's ask some questions. Let's see, is, is this, does this happen? And it actually, you know, happens all over the world. And it's always happened as long as there've been human consciousness. And so then you could actually go on a journey of discovery and, and look at more. I, I think there's, there is one other thing that I think is really important too, is that if we have an awakening experience and many people do, they can have a, a near death experience. They can have a, a terrible trauma uh, or a loss in their lives and they can have a very deep, rich awakening type experience. But if they don't go through a period of, of purgation or, or something along those lines, they won't see the fruit of that awakening. And they can be very unaware of themselves. And there isn't any like fruit of the spirit that you'll see out of it. They could just be jerks who've had an awakening experience. Does, does that make sense to you? Sure. Do you know yeah. what I mean when I say that? Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that that can happen all the time. And, and sometimes mm -hmm. if you're a jerk that has an awakening experience, the awakening experience can actually even serve to reinforce your jerkhood and you can never like really look <laughs> the at ego. your stuff. Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Ken Wilbur says, um, you know, he puts it in the context of like structure stages and state stages where it's like, if you're kind mm -hmm. of in a low, if, if you're, you know, for instance, in some sort of fundamentalist church and you have an awakening experience, it will almost mm -hmm. always serve to reinforce your fundamentalist beliefs and you'll never kind of leave that stage. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I think basically what you're pointing at though, is if you want to go deeper, there's no shortcut around psychology. Like there's no shortcut around, yeah, your own Doing yeah, the doing work. the the hard work and really the, the kind of mm -hmm. honesty um, that that's absolutely mm -hmm. necessary, um, the rigorous honesty, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's the awakening is just it's the is one part of uh, of a revelation that keeps revealing more of what needs to be cleaned out and and looked at seriously, and you know we do have things that need to be illuminated and, and then rid again. Like that, that's the thing about you're illuminated sometimes to more things that need to be purged. And then are you going to do it? Or are you just going to think, well, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. I had this experience and I, now I have, I have insights that other people don't have. And I have, you know, I've, I've felt oneness. That I know other people don't have it. Sure. Oh yeah, sure. Definitely. And, and I think that that happens all the time. I think that what eventually gets you past that, if you do move past that, is the point that your own ego almost starts to block you, you know? So it's just kind of like um, your own ego 
gets in the way of yourself. And uh, because I know for myself at a certain point in time, I, it's almost like, I mean, there's been many periods actually where I haven't really wanted to talk about it with anybody and certainly not with people who wouldn't understand um, because that would end up being a block. And then also I kind of realized like, okay, look, if I start announcing I've had this wonderful experience and I'm all that and I really am not all that, then like, um, you know, when, when I basically kind of, um, continue, it's almost like I've set the bar too high for myself, you know, and, and it almost becomes like the self-inflicted pressure that kind of almost would imprison me. So enlightenment or divine union or spiritual progress or the, the, how advanced you are spiritually, it has absolutely nothing to do with your status in life. Absolutely nothing to do with your vocation. Like, I mean, it just completely independent of, of that. And well, yeah, the pedestal, like putting people on a pedestal and or assuming that they don't have regular human thoughts or have struggles or somehow they're they're so much more amazing than the rest of us when the reality is that <laughs> everybody has weaknesses and troubles and flaws and those don't just go away because you've had some amazing experiences and and you're on a journey, you know, that somehow you you get to bypass all the regular rigors and struggles. Of yeah, life. yeah, definitely. And um, I, I mean, I like to think of it as basically, uh, you know, if if you knew that having like an unending peace of mind, just a complete peace of mind that unended and you took in every single situation all the time, if you knew that was possible this lifetime, wouldn't you want to get it? And, and th- that's kind of how I think of what this process is leading to. I mean, obviously, yes, it starts with this sense of God and the sense of external God. But, but the ultimate fruit of, um, you know, getting closer to God in the contemplative uh, process, I think, is basically getting the peace that passeth all understanding. That's, you know, that's the fruit. But, mm-hmm. but it, it, it does not mean that, mm-hmm. that your humanness and your human imperfection goes away. It, it just kind of means, you know, you're at peace while that imperfection plays out. <laughs> mm, yeah. And ultimately, it's the, the fruit is Christ likeness. And, and that we tend to if we're feeling good about ourselves, we tend to think we're higher on the scale or better on the scale than, than we are. We'll tend to think, hey, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. But it is, you know, that that Christ-likeness is the fruit of a mature, um, <laughs> you know, someone who's who's okay. And, and we, that's, that's where we get into trouble. As soon as we start comparing, then all of a sudden the ego is injected and all that stuff. But after illumination, the next step, or it's not even a step, but the next um, stage or what what comes next in that um, system or that cycle. So, so that's when at the, the fourth stage, that's where Underhill puts dark night of the soul. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's obviously kind of taking that from St. John of the cross. Um, yeah. She's using it a bit differently than the way he does it. He uses it. Um, 
she's not inconsistent with John of the Cross. It, it's just she's she's using it for her own framework here. But that dark night is basically kind of after you've kind of gone into this deeper space that you can really just lose it. I mean, you can just lose yeah. lose the connection to God. I mean, it can almost seem as if, wow, God's not here like wait what happened mm -hmm. like you know yeah i was kind of in this but um you know there, there can be a dryness there can be an aridity there can be just really any number of extreme pains i mean a lot of times too you know once once you've opened up a lot a lot of times i think in the body if there's kind of blocked blocked areas of the body some of this like almost uh, Holy Spirit uh, energy can just kind of like flow into the blocked places of the body. I mean, you you could, you know, and you, you I, I like that you stressed, you know, the the purgation element and like the psychological health element because a lot of times when that's out of whack too, um, you know, you can really start to have all these strange uh, things happen, um, all these kinds of imbalances and in difficulties functioning. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I almost kind of think of, of the dark night as just, uh, you know, all the kinds of extreme forms of whether it's absence of God or just extreme forms of, of suffering or uh, mental torment that happen. And a lot of times too, I think when they're happening, uh, after you've already kind of like gone into all of this and started mm -hmm. to feel like, wow, I'm becoming more spiritual. You know, you could really start to think, wow, I, I failed, you know, like I failed, mm -hmm. like I think I went wrong. Um, or, or mm -hmm. you can feel like, wow, I've regressed, you know, you hear that a whole lot, you know, like, wow, I opened up and mm -hmm. I, you know, I was really going on my path path. And then it's just like, wow, all of a sudden I'm just suffering and I'm miserable every day. Mm -hmm. I must have regressed. So the dark night has a right. lot of that and, and more and more. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's also important to, to stress that it, if you you can have like a clinical depression, which, which I don't want to confuse people that, you know, get help. If you have a clinical depression, you can't get out of bed. It's not, don't want to equate the two with dark night, even though you could have both. Um, but that another thing that I, I think uh, people have told me and I've experienced for myself is the loss of, of sense, uh, sensation that would have normally drawn you to God. So like, say, if, if prayer used to really give you the comfort and the presence and the peace of God or singing or worship, it no longer does that anymore. It's like all the comforts are taken away. And even though you're trying to draw near to God, uh, you're not rebelling and walking away and, you know, giving God the finger or something. You're trying to, uh, and you long for God. God seems to, to be, he's obscured, God's obscured. And feels no longer there like a like a mother has taken the breast away from the baby and is weaning the baby and it feels you feel alone and i think that um it's more than just being down in the dumps or sad you know it's it's truly is like being cut off and i think that um you know people can have different periods of dark nights i don't know that i think there's just one i think there can be many or few but it, it can be very, very perplexing as you go on a path, a spiritual path, 
and things have seemed to be going quite well and been quite fruitful and quite amazing. And then suddenly you're just, it feels like you're just falling, you know, into the abyss. <laughs> and um, that it's been very, a very, I don't think as um, in the evangelical Protestant tradition that has often been mislabeled as backsliding or losing your faith or um, seen as you're doing something wrong, you're not praying hard enough. But in, in Catholic tradition, it's just often seen as this is just part of the spiritual journey. And it's, re it's encouraging to know that this is a real regular part of, of uh, a path that is common human yeah definitely path. and really uh, there's a dark night basically like at the transition point between each of these five stages and you know that's yeah that's mm, kind that's of a a, that's point. in that well th point. that's kind of what ken wilbur puts you know he he just calls each transition a dark night so you could really call all of these kinds of transitions of the dark night. And yeah, it's, it's really uh, unfortunate that people might think that is backsliding because it's, it's actually the opposite. You're actually going deeper, but, but yeah, if you see that as backsliding, mm -hmm. then you're not going to go into it. And, and the other thing that's hard about those dark nights is that a lot of times you have to reframe stuff. You have to let go of old comforts. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to find new ones, mm -hmm. you know? So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a change. And it, it's also kind of like the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief. You know, you have to go through of, of letting go mm -hmm. as well. I mean, that those are all dark nights, you know, the stages of grief. And a lot of the dark nights in this context are kind of stages of grief with parts of yourself, really, that, you know, you're almost offering up your yeah. parts of yourself to God. You're a living sacrament. Mm. Yeah. A friend of mine, um, Claire, who was on uh, my podcast a little while ago, talked about hospicing things in your life and, and midwifing new things and, and being okay with that regularly there, you know, there's, there's little deaths all the time that we're leaving behind these, the dead things that we're leaving behind and that we have to have space for them for hospicing them and then midwifing the new things and realizing that there's always these births and deaths and births and deaths. And that that's, you know, the, the crazy thing would be to think that the change doesn't somehow involve a death and then a birth. Um, because that's all there ever is. And we can see that in nature all the time too. Um, that that's the most, the most natural thing is change and involves birth and death. But um, it's true in just the spiritual journey. Um, every purgation period is about right, death. Right, right. And, 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 and it could be no other way. I mean, that's, that's really well said. I mean, in, you know, the mm -hmm. Seneca would, would always have a phrase of, you know, basically in order to live in this world, you've got to learn how to die. You know, you really need to learn how to die. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I, I, and I really just kind of think there, mm -hmm. it's just, it seems that there's just a certain sector of the population that's drawn to this and a certain sector that's not, I mean, I, to, to be real, you know, to, to just keep it real and do a reality check real here, real quick. Like I think most of the Western world is generally just kind of living in 
the external world of objects in three dimensions. Like they're trying to manage things. So like there's not really much of a focus on the inner world. They're just kind of trying to manage like, you know, their, their Mm -hmm. outer lives, you know, whether it's their job, the people they know, you know, what they've Mm -hmm. got to do, the tasks to do. I mean, all this gross stuff never really enters the equation. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, what we're talking about here is Mm -hmm. an awakening experience that maybe even we didn't plan for that then kind of initiates all of this, um, Mm. you know, or a dark night that we didn't plan for that initiates it. I mean, a lot of times it's the the suffering that brings people here, but yeah, I mean, by and large, it it still seems like the majority of the planet is, is just very much just kind of living in the you know, three-dimensional world of objects and, and external reality. Hmm. Well, certainly uh, affluent places seem to be. I don't know. It could be that places with, with great want and need uh, don't don't live as much in a three-dimensional world, but I don't have as much experience in, in places of want. Um for the the part of union with God, which is the last one, and it's difficult to know, even just hearing union with God, theosis, what could that actually entail? Is that is it actually possible? What are we talking about when we say that? So this is kind of why I like Underhill using uh, the phrase the unitive way. Um, you know, the way I think mm-hmm. about it is that kind of peace of mind that's just unending and it's there mm-hmm. all the time, um, even in bad situations. Mm-hmm. This just very expansive peace of mind experientially like that's how I understand it. But as far as as far as the tradition or as far as really any tradition, I think that we're often going on texts that came a long time ago and the language that's used seems at least to me very very dramatic so you know yeah because to talk about union with god it it almost seems like it almost seems like something that's too big that's too good or that's Mm -hmm. too perfect if you put it like that, then it would be obviously something that, you know, most people don't have the opportunity or um, the ability to access. And I think it, I think it is, but um, well, it's metaphorically different, but it may be experientially identical to what the Eastern traditions would call an enlightenment. Um, But as far mm-hmm. as trying to phrase it in a in a Christian context, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it's difficult to talk about without being without it sounding like something that means something almost supernatural or perfect, which which I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I I know. Um, you know, I really enjoy Brother Lawrence uh, practicing the presence of God, and that's the only tiny like I don't know if that's what it is going toward, but that you could have a continual sense of God's presence near. Right, right. And I think. Well, I, I think that's that what you're, it is. You're, an, ori- an orientation 
yeah, an orientation toward uh, living life with the presence of God at hand. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just basically an unending resting and pure being um, or, the, or the ground of being, mm. you know, as, as Tillich put it, you know, it's mm-hmm. just a it's just a it's an uh, it's a resting in that that's basically that happens automatically. It's not something that it's when you get to mm-hmm. a point where all seeking uh, stops and you're there automatically you know Mm. so like it's not like something you Mm. have to do to maintain it it's really redemption is actually a great Mm. word it's it's basically the restoring of Mm. you know just the natural self in a in almost kind of garden of eden sense like pre-fall i mean it's really it's really just the experiential embodiment of of what christianity talks about redemption and salvation i mean you're basically restored to the original nature and you Mm. know that the presence of Mm -hmm. god is in all things all the time and you're resting in it all the time without necessarily having to um do do anything to like maintain that state or keep that state you're just you're just there. The suffering mm-hmm. has been completely removed. The roots and foundations of suffering are completely removed. Um, any sort of suffering has nothing to arise on. Um, so, so there's still, but there's still a sense mm-hmm. of the biological, obviously, you know, I mean, if you um, break your mm-hmm. arm, that's going to hurt and you need to go to a doctor. Um, you know, I mean, you're still going to have all of mm-hmm. the just kind of biological things that, that go along with, you know, with, with being in a body, but, but that kind of unending awareness of, of spirit is, is there all the time. Well, let me know when you get there, Clint, unless you're Uh, there already. No, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a text when it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I will appreciate that text. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Oh, this is probably a good, place to wrap up we've gone a really long time and i really appreciated talking to you i thank you so much yeah thanks for having me it's it's been a good conversation so i really appreciate it If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>